This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome to another episode of Chronicles Magazine podcast. I'm delighted to have as our guest today, Pastor Doug Wilson, who lives in, is it Moscow or Moscow? No cow in Moscow, Moscow. Moscow, Idaho. He's a pastor <laughs> up there. And I think you've written 85,000 books. I think that's more or less. So Yeah, but I, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, okay. Doug wrote an essay for Chronicles Magazine in May called Social Contract Theory as Feathered Serpent. Um, and we're going to get a little bit into his argument, but basically he makes the case that um, every society needs a founding myth. It needs something that they can operate, uh, you know, as a foundation that that kind of, uh, you know, keeps people's minds focused and without like the mental anarchy um, that can ensue when there's nothing foundational in a society. And after the collapse of Christendom, um, modernity needed something new and social contract theory helped to play that role. So before we get into Doug's uh, argument there, I wanted to talk to Paul a little bit, get his take on perhaps the different types of social contract theory, because there are different versions of them. So maybe, Paul, could you give us a summary of, of what we mean by this, when it came about? And I know there's you know people like Rousseau and, and Locke, but they had slightly, even even Burke had a, had a version of social contract theory. So maybe you could just give us an overview. Yeah, the social contract theory becomes popular in the 16th century. And it is sometimes seen as a uh, further development of medieval natural law, which it is not. There's a very good book by a Catholic scholar, Michel V. Uh, uh, v. or V. A., which uh, which I uh, which I read, which shows the development of natural right, um, in some ways as a sort of almost the kind of variant on sort of extreme nominalism, and. Uh, I, you know, one, one needn't accept all the arguments he presents, but I, I think one can certainly distinguish natural right, which is a notion of an individual claim uh, to freedom uh, from natural law, which posits some kind of universal moral standard, uh, which is accessible uh, to human reason with some prodding and some help from, uh, from, from well-informed and uh, um, uh, intelligent instructors. But uh, a natural natural law is 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 based on the notion of moral reason. The other is based on an individual claim, which supposedly arises out of a state of nature. And the natural law, th uh, natural right theorists assume that there is some natural condition in which men uh, lived before the origin of civil society, and civil society came about through a contract. Um, based on the needs or convenience of those who enter civil society and accept it as members of it. Now, th this theory becomes very popular, as I said, in the 16th century, um, both among uh, Presbyterians um, and Catholics, uh, and both develop a social contract theory um, in reaction to religious oppression. Uh, when they're living under monarchs who do not share their religious views and to persecute them. And uh, the, the Scottish Covenanters in the 1560s and 1570s uh, develop this, this, um, their own form of the social contract theory, which then will go on to uh, become uh, very popular among religious radicals, uh, particularly among the, uh, the levelers um, who were radical Protestants in the 17th century. And many, many of them were readers of John Locke. Uh, in fact, it has been argued uh, that, that Locke wrote his second treatise on God, and also the first, which is um, a critique of, uh, of Robert Filmer, who's the defending divine right monarchy. He wrote this in, uh, in order to appeal to a leveler public. Now, in early America, I think what you see is a juxtaposing, certainly by the 18th century, a juxtaposing of three different theories of government, which generally are accepted by people, by, by scholars, by the framers of our constitution. And they don't necessarily see contradiction among them, which I think is sort of interesting because I think Pastor Wilson and I do see contradictions here. Um, and one is, one might say it's a kind of classical model because these people are heavily influenced by Greco-Roman history. 
you know, and by, by, by uh, uh, certainly by Cicero, Polybius, other ancient writers. Um, and they're sort of looking back to the Roman Republic or something like that, you know, as a model of government. Um, the, sec the second view is biblical because these people were mostly devout Protestants, you know, and heavily Calvinist. And, um, you know, they see the Bible as the basis of their, you know, civil society, and they compare themselves to the ancient Israelites, of course, which is common comparison made by the Puritans. Um, the, the, the third theory, of course, is the natural right theory, um, which is, is not Christian and is not classical. Um, and, you know, is, is based on a notion that of rights uh, uh, adhering to individuals, being attached to individuals, and, and um, arising with them at birth. Uh, and the creation of civil society is a compromise between these natural rights to life, liberty, and happiness, uh, which is Jefferson's restatement of Locke, um, and the needs of civil society. So a civil society will not uh, necessarily preserve your natural rights in the form in which you, you're born with them, but they will preserve them to whatever extent is possible in some kind of political social order. So um, that, that is a theory of natural right. And you have people who uh, will make claims like James Wilson in Pennsylvania, uh, that you know, Locke is a most Christian thinker. This is a Christian theory. And I suppose Locke was you know, uh, some kind of practicing Protestant, but there's nothing that, in fact, he wrote on religion, but um, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, inherently Christian or Judeo-Christian about, about the natural rights theory, although it is developed by religious people in the 16th century uh, in the face of religious, uh, religious and political oppression. All right, so let's, let's shift over to, to Pastor Wilson. One of the things that you said uh, in your article, and, and this I, it looks like this came about sort of uh, reflecting on Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed. And you mentioned that social contract theory to you is actually an origins myth. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, every society, has to answer at some point, at some level, the big questions. How do we get here? Who, who are we? Uh, where are we going? And how should we behave along the way? Mm -hmm. um, there, every society is living out a story, and they need a narrative arc. They need it. Uh, if we're in a novel, we need a chapter one, and we need to have some sense of where this is going. So uh, that's the every intelligent sophomore is going to ask those questions. <laughs> Who are we? Uh, why are we here? How do we get here? What's the code? Um, I, I'm fond of saying that all the big questions can be reduced to uh, third grade playground questions, <laughs> which would be why and who says, <laughs> right? <laughs> so and and so basically, uh, every society has to answer those questions. Ancient societies answered them in mythological terms, which moderns find laughable. Um, you know, the the feathered ser serpent in my in my title. Um, and but the, but they're meeting a need. They're 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 stating something that they're answering a question that cries out for an answer. But our society is no different. Mm -hmm. And so what about social, why, why was there a need, you know, during this time for social contract theory to play this role? What was happening in the world that, that sort of created a foundational vacuum, so to speak? Well, it's, it's sort of like um, the social contract thinking starts to bubble up or starts to arise and coalesce pre-Darwin, right? Mm -hmm. So it, that's all prior to Darwin. But the acceptance of Darwin's theory sort of... Um, put the whole thing into a crisis mode <laughs> um, because the bright sophomore is going to say, you mean to say we're just meat bones and protoplasm that we just, we're just gunk that sort of floated to the surface. And is that's all, all we are. That's who we are. How should we behave? Uh, so the nihilistic implications of Darwin um, are, are a pressing problem. And there was this development in the centuries prior to Darwin of social contract theory, which if you think about it carefully is right up there with a the feathered serpent. I mean, what you're saying is that we're all obligated 
to obey the terms of a contract that nobody ever made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we have to submit to the decrees of a parliament that never met. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just sort of ar- arbitrarily seized upon, I think. And and the fact that it was sort of an epistemic necessity is revealed by the fact that nobody asks the ob- obvious question. <laughs> why, why am I obligated to obey a law that no legislature ever passed? Mm-hmm. Um, well, what we're doing is we're meeting a psychological need, an emotional need. We're not it's not an it's not intellectually rigorous at all um it never it never happened and and this is particularly i'm i'm interested in what paul said about the uh, the christian attempts to sort of melt uh, synch- there's a form of syncretism here where mm-hmm. uh, christians are trying to cobble this kind of thinking together with biblical terminologies and categories mm-hmm. um and and some of them were are more conservative than some are radical, some are conservative, but ultimately it's futile because Christians believe that there really was a true parliament that actually met. <laughs> God created the world. He put our first parents in the world and he gave them the terms of the covenant. Um, th- these are not hypothetical people. These are not, uh, these are not thought experiment people. We're a fallen race because we disobeyed God. We disobeyed the terms of the covenant. And so uh, is if we reject the idea of the word myth being uh, synonymous with untrue, um, the Orthodox Christians have a founding myth, which is laid out for us in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's radically inconsistent with the hypothetical mythology of social contract theory, whether it's the left-wing form of it uh, in, in modern terms, the left-wing form of it you see in Rousseau or the right-wing form of it that you see in Locke. A lot mm-hmm. of people like Locke because of his concern for individual freedom, and we don't like what the modern state is doing, and so Locke seems like a good, you know, he's going to stand up for us. But that's, um, these things always come back to bite you. Right. So, Paul, you know, in your opinion, are we kind of seeing the end of an overall arc of things like there's sort of been a trajectory since the the foundations of social contract theory to today where um or do you think that today there's like continuity in the social contract theory or what is happening on the new left are, are things kind of closing and are we entering a new era yeah first i'll get back to something that pastor wilson said i think there is an attempt to fuse christianity particularly protestant christianity with with natural rights thinking and, you know, they, they use words like the covenant that goes back to the 16th century Presbyterians so that uh, the social contract is a covenant. Of course, it is not quite like the covenant that you have in the Bible, but right. they, they do use language like this in order to sort of make it palatable. I think, again, Pastor Wilson is right about the Dar- about Darwin. Uh, that um, uh, And if you look at a group like the uh, Claremont School, the West Coast Straussians, they are absolutely, they believe in natural rights as a religion. Natural rights is interpreted by Harry Jaffa. But the interesting thing is they hate Darwin because they see <laughs> Darwin as the direct challenge to natural right. Uh, they, the two enemies are Darwin and Hegel. Hegel, because he spoke about, you know, an administrative state, which to them is inconsistent with natural rights thinking. I don't think it really is, but uh, that, that's sort of, that's the argument that they make. Um, but I, I think the natural rights theory, you know, the, as sort of as a, as a founding myth is so deeply ingrained in American culture that you don't really move beyond it. You just get variations of it. And I think that's what we see today. So that the, the argument that the left will make is not that the social contract theory is wrong, but it has to be redefined to include victim groups, uh, the claims of people who have been disadvantaged in the past, blacks, gays, women, whatever. But they, they don't reject the basic social contract theory so much as try to expand it. And I think that's in some ways inherent in social contract thinking, right? Because, you know, why confine yourself to Locke's more conservative rights? Why can't we have other rights, which we, you know, which, which we see as implicit in the social contract? But I, I think what, what it assumes is that society is sort of an artificial construct that you simply have individuals who are sort of floating around and they come together and make this contract. 
And uh, I, I think it was actually David Hume who anticipated Pastor Wilson's point by saying he's never seen people make a social contract. You know, this, and of course the American constitution does not really fit that right. because it was made by, you know, by, by 18th century Protestant landowners or something like that, who are not coming out of a state of nature <laughs> but ruled by the British, you know, in, in a very structured society. So it, it, really, it, really, it really doesn't fit that model. But I, I don't think we, we can really get beyond the social contract theory um, because I think it is so deeply rooted, one might say, in American political culture by now. Yeah, so, deep, so deeply rooted that people can't even see it. It's, right. it's, it's not, uh, it's sort of the eyes they see with mm -hmm. instead mm -hmm. of the thing that they look at with their eyes. Mm -hmm. And you're never called upon to prove it. You're, right. you're never called upon to give an accounting for it. And this yeah, is I mean, the, same, the same thing as human human rights, which seems to almost come out, it seems to develop out of natural rights. And, uh, you know, the, you say, well, what is a human right? I mean, I understand, you know, the Bible gives you rights or the classical tradition give you give you rights or the Constitution. What, what is a human right? And they say, well, you know, it's implicit in Christianity or implicit in something else. Um, well, no, it's not, because by now a human human rights include things like to be a tra tra operation to be transgendered, uh, mm -hmm. or have a gay marriage or something like that, and it's sort of very hard to pin this down. It just keeps expanding, you know. And, the, and, and a corollary, a corollary to this would be that the hypothetical parliament that mm -hmm. met in the mists of ancient <laughs> mists of time is somehow still in session. Mm -hmm. they're, right. they're, st they're still receiving amendments, mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and so what that means is that there's a surreptitious attempt, I think, to, to seize control of the levers of power. Mm -hmm. we, want this, we want this thing to have been back in the past, mm -hmm. but, we, but we don't want to submit to it as a thing over and done. Mm -hmm. we, we want to make adjustments as we go. Well, that's that's not a hypothetical parliament in ancient times. That's a, you're, you're, it's a founding myth, and it's an ongoing project. It is. It is. And then, of course, we we assign the def, you know, the uh, the groups that clarify or proclaim these natural rights for us. You know, the some international court or the UN. Or <laughs> we try to find some agency that we like, which takes the place of the parliament that you're the the right. parliament that never ends. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Doug, do you think the social contract theory was sort of an ad hoc solution to, you know, like when Nietzsche, you know, cried out that God is dead and, and that we killed him? Do you think there was at that point the recognition of a need for something else to replace Christendom? Sure, sure. Because if God is dead, then what a lot of people like Nietzsche see is a job opening. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and the late Francis Schaeffer um, once said that if there is no God above the state, the state is God. Mm -hmm. So if you, there has to be a transcendental source of authority over human society, because otherwise the all the perks of that transcendental authority are dragged down into the eminent realm and somebody's got to be in charge of that. So, uh, somebody's got to make the decisions. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that's very much the case. So if God is dead, that means there is no God above this, of above culture, above society. And that means we've got to locate the prerogatives of deity within society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and okay. And, and presto totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, you know, when I was reading your article, I was thinking back to a book that uh, I think you've probably read. You seem like someone that would have, would have read it. It's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, I, I've, I've read it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Wonderful there's, book. There's the part on, on Nietzsche, and he just talks about, you know, the unchaining of the earth from the sun and, and the chaos that ensues with the death of, death of God. And Truman basically argues that, you know, what happens then is mankind has to take on this terrifying, is what he calls the terrifying responsibility mm -hmm. of being a God yourself. And part of what came out of that need, that necessity, if there is no God on which to base, you know, the society and the order of society 
you have to create some sort of new founding myth. And that's what the social contract theory was. Correct. Yes. Um, and so, Paul, I, you know, I, 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 you mentioned this, I, I asked this before, and I think you drove at it. Um, I guess my question is, is the new left following the same trajectory? Are they still employing this language or is this something new that's happening? Well, they speak, they speak about rights all the time. And I think, you know, the notion of rights comes out of social contract thinking. Uh, th this is an argument I'm always having with the conservative establishment. They say, you know, the, the right to bear arms, God gave us this right. So what they do is they sort of attach God, you know, to some right that developed historically. And I would be willing to say it's, it's, it's part of a providential order of some, you know, it could direct, maybe ultimately be attributed to God. But, you know, the, the right to bear arms, as I'm always arguing, is, is the right of free men um, under English law that develops in the Middle Ages. <laughs> so why not defend it that mm -hmm. way? You know, it, it, does, it does have cultural roots, but they want to give it to these, these sort of, what I think are pseudo transcendent roots. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, they, they will talk about, you know, the rights that they like, you know, th these are directly from God. Um, Presumably, presumably rights they don't like are not from God. But then, but then, you know, what do you do with gay marriage, which apparently conservatives seem to have latched onto now? They think that this is a family value. Uh, is is this is this a right from God? Um, so you sort of you sort of get into this problem. Uh, what I'm always saying it's sort of simpler, simply to say that you know America was created uh, as a sort of a biblical a biblical basis, and we accept. You know, it was understood as biblical ethics, Judeo-Christian ethics, call them you. But you know, they're rooted in the Bible, and this is what Americans have studied and read, and this is the basis. It was the basis of our culture, and we have certain classical values we've taken over. And there's a constitution. You know, we have rights to there. Why drag in this natural rights stuff? And I think, as Pastor Wilson said, it it is so deeply ingrained in the American DNA by now that it's very hard to let go of. And I think this is. This is true of left. And one of the things, by the way, that distinguishes the left from Marxist, then um, you know what my argument is that the woke left is not Marxist. It's much worse, <laughs> much more dangerous. And that's uh, hard to and that's hard to do. <laughs> that's hard to do, right? But they've succeeded. Uh, I mean, they've attacked gender, everything. They're, they're just crazy. These people. I mean, they they don't only want to, want an economic they want all these other revolutions, but they still use the language of right which is interesting, no self-respecting Marxist would talk about rights. You know, there's class struggle and there's the victory of the working class and the dictatorship of the working class, but our left also wants rights language. They continue, they continue to use it. So the argument from both of you is that the American founding was not based on natural right and social contract theory, contrary to sort of the American myth that came apart in the post-war world. No, I, I, th I think there is, there is appeal to natural right. I mean, this is one of the things I'm arguing with my fellow paleoconservatives. It's there. You know, the Straussians are right about this. <laughs> um, and, you know, Lewis Hartz and others were right about there is an appeal to natural right. But I think the people who made those appeals also believed in other things. They believed right. in the Bible. They believed in, cl in classical, you know, the models of classical civilization. They just thought they could work natural right in together with these other yeah. Things, but the I, natural right seems to have survived longer. Yeah, I, I think that it's correct to say that it, at the founding there was a strain of this of this natural rights uh, approach that was woven into the texture of everything that was going on right. before before everybody before anybody recognized that you're mixing oil and water here. It, mm -hmm. it, it, um, let's okay, let's try this. Let's build. Um, Let's build a coalition. It's sort of like the the post uh, the the Reagan coalition of there were the libertarians and there were the you know the free market guys and the strong national defense guys and the social conservative guys. Mm -hmm. Well, you can build a coalition like that, but if people think that they're allies when they're actually co belligerents, but there's a there's a t moment in history when mm -hmm. these elements can come together and, and row in the same direction, but that doesn't make you share the same deep assumptions. So, yeah. right. So uh, at the founding, at the constitutional convention, out of the 55 men there, 50 of them were Orthodox Christians. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and we had but the strain that we're referring to i mean jefferson and and franklin were there they were alive they mm-hmm. they were they were players and but there were also uh, deeply convinced christians involved in the project and there were other uh, other men who were deeply uh, steeped trained educated in english common law mm-hmm. and that and and that goes back into the medieval period and relies in in many ways on the classical world so you had there was an amalgam of um things going on and we have seen the natural rights lang- mm-hmm. language and thought forms sort of corrode it it was sort of a corrosive that ate out every container mm-hmm. that you that you tried to put it in mm-hmm. um, yeah i think i think that that's correct Curiously, you have people who are devout Christians who appeal to natural rights. I mean, Sam Adams, people think of as appealing to natural. He also defended the established uh, Congregational Church in Massachusetts. And you find out that Roger Sherman in Connecticut, uh, another, you know, appealed to natural right, but also supported the Congregational Church there, which was a Calvinist church at the time. Um, So, I mean, you know, it was quite possible for people to believe that these things were compatible. Right. Which, which they did. I mean, uh, so you, you not only have people who are religious skeptics, but you also have people who are profoundly religious who also believe in natural right, you know, and do not really see, uh, do not see any comp- incompatibility, though I think they sort of move away from the natural rights thinking in the next generation and sort of go back to a, their religious cultural roots. Um, natural rights become an important thing again with the uh, campaign against slavery, at least among some of the people who oppose slavery. Um, but then, of course, the, both sides quoted the Bible. You know, the slave owners and the mm-hmm. abolitionists both quoted the Bible all the time. Right. So I think that was a much more powerful source of authority, even you know, in the struggle uh, about slavery uh, that leads to this, uh, that culminates in the Civil War. Um, but you get natural rights talk again like in the you know the the middle of the middle of the 19th century lincoln certainly appeals to natural rights he also appeals to the bible yeah so uh, again you have the the juxtaposing of what you see as ultimately incompatible positions i have a question you know then about that you know people holding both of these views do you think they're inherently paradoxical or do you think there can be a consistent position where you have adopt both of these I'd be willing. I'd be willing to read a book where someone attempted to make the case. The mm-hmm. uh, the, the point that we're talking about is nobody. Natural rights is the kind of thing where people don't think they need to make a case. Mm-hmm. It's it, it sort of uh, we hold these truths to be self evident. Mm-hmm. We we don't have to we don't have to make the case. I think that you could. Of I would say, of course, uh, if someone says man is created in the image of God. And the image of God must be respected. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the ways in which we are obligated to respect the image of God in others? You could make that case, mm-hmm. and someone could couch it with the language of rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, I would want the person to be aware of intellectual the intellectual history and how everybody other people have used the language mm-hmm. of rights. Because as a pastor over many years, I have seen numerous instances where people were much better christians than they were logicians right right they 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 lived out as they lived their lives as though they loved jesus because they really do and they live by the bible but Mm -hmm. they also pick up language from republican talking points and a guy they saw a guy they saw on fox talking about something and they pick about and someone who knows what what's going on can mm-hmm. say that thing you just said that, that that's not scriptural that you i know you want to be scriptural and you're living that way you're a mm-hmm. good christian but not every not every thought a christian thinks is a christian thought <laughs> yeah i i i think you, you you can say that you know people can possibly hold both views simultaneously but i do think the natural rights thinking um culminates in egotism uh, being self-absorbed um, and sort of uh, reducing the social bond to self-interest, individual self-interest. I think that's where it leads. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think what you get, like particularly in the anti-slavery movement is basically an appeal to scripture 
um, in the end to the, you know, the, the fact that men are created in the image of God, but then they, you know, they, uh, some of them then swerve to the, uh, the natural rights position. Um, it is possible to sort of balance them, I suppose, but uh, I think natural rights have a life of their own. And, you know, they, they come to swallow up other, other traditions and persuasions uh, in the end. And I think we've seen that happen in the United States. What are some of the consequences politically of adopting social contract theory as the founding myth? Well, um, I, I love Solzhenitsyn's phrase, live not by lies. Um, and this is basically if your founding myth is a radical lie, I don't see how you can have anything but negative downstream consequences. Um, and not only that, but you've adopted this. Uh, social contract that nobody has seen or heard. You've just postulated it. And so consequently, you wind up with atrocities that nobody can see. Uh, uh, the abortion carnage would be an example of, of that, um, where, where people with a straight face could talk about uh, abortion in terms of constitutional rights or, mm -hmm. or health care. Um, that, the, that kind of euphemism cloak can only work if you're if you're inhabiting a world of lies and uh, uh, the palace of lies that you live in has a cornerstone and that cornerstone i think is social contract theory hmm. yeah I, I think it's an interesting point and sort of coming back to the abortion controversy uh i think the women who say i have a right to dispose of my child may, may probably have the better natural rights argument on their side um I, I don't buy this stuff that some of the right to life people put out that, you know, uh, slaves uh, did not have rights in, you know, 150 years ago or something. And now they the, the feed us the same way. Well, the, the, uh, the, the slave could assert Lockean natural rights, right? The, um, the fetus that cannot do that, it is incapable of asserting rights. But the most we can ascribe rights to it and then people are gonna debate the point. Um, but I, I think they're, they're the, the, the natural right of the person having the abortion um, is to me is more persuasive than the attempt to ascribe natural right to the, to the fetus. On the other hand, uh, I think on the basis of what we know of science now, and certainly on the basis of traditional religious views, uh, the fetus does have a right to survive. Right. Um, but I don't think natural rights theory really gets you there. And I think some of these people, particularly some of the Catholic anti-abortionists are lying to themselves, trying to pull out natural rights argument uh, to uh, defend the right of the fetus to survive. Let, let, let me add something to that. Uh, and I've felt this way for years. The, pro, for the mainstream pro-life movement has for many years, decades, um, had a sanctity of human life Sunday, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, that's and we push the sanctity of human life. We're pro-life because we believe in the sanctity of human life. And I've objected to that because um, I've, I want to say no. I believe in the sanctity of God's law and the consequent dignity of human life. Um, human life has dignity, but not sanctity. If if it has sanctity, it's the source of the law, right? <laughs> and this goes back to the uh, the point you are making about natural rights bubbling up from the individual, as opposed to natural law, which mm -hmm. is, which overarches everybody. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. natural law is authoritative. Natural revelation is authoritative. Mm -hmm. The Bible is authoritative. Um, individualism, where my rights come from me, <laughs> my rights arise from me, mm -hmm. that's not authoritative. That's, mm -hmm. that's radical individualism. That's mm -hmm. me being me, me doing me. And so when the pro-lifers talk about the sanctity of human life, I think they're ceding uh, a little bit too much territory to, to that, that human rights mm -hmm. um, uh, mentality. Mm -hmm. They're, they're ceding too much to individualism. I ought not to take my neighbor's life, not because my neighbor is against it, although he is, right? <laughs> right? He is against it. But I ought not to take my neighbor's life because God told me I must not. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm, God tells me to respect my neighbor. Um, if if I if I give way and start 
respecting my neighbor because my neighbor says I should respect my neighbor, then I think we're circling the drain. We're going to lose everything. Mm-hmm. Anything to add there, Paul? No, I, I, I agree. I think that uh, uh, biblical morality is based on responsibility, reciprocal response. People are responsible to each other under a divine law. Uh, the other one is based on individual claims mm-hmm. uh, to, to do what I want, <laughs> uh, basically. Uh, I, I, I might add that uh, Locke in many ways represents a less developed form of natural rights thinking than you find in Hobbes. Hobbes is not very much concerned with showing that people actually histo- in some primitive state were sort of like living uh, outside of... Uh, civil society, which Locke assumes is the case from looking at natives of North America who were being uh, the, the Indian tribes that uh, were, were then, being, uh, then being discovered by explorers. Um, but what Hobbes assumes um, is that every time we see civil society coming apart, when we're no longer, there's no longer anyone protecting our lives, then we see ourselves re- returning to the state of nature, which is almost a psychological state. Um, and I think it's, I think Hobbes see, I had a deeper understanding of this, and I think he knew it was, this was a myth, so that the only way you could justify a state of nature being there is by saying it's an emotional state in the, at the end of the day, right? I, I feel this way because I see, I see sovereignty, civil society breaking up. Uh, as, as you do every time you walk through New York City or Philadelphia, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm entering the state of nature at that point. <laughs> and yeah. I, 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 think that, I think that's a valid, uh, that's a valid position, whereas the, the natural rights position that develops with Locke and, and Rousseau and others, I think is much, much, less, def- much less sustainable because they are assuming that there was a state of nature <laughs> out, of, out of which people came and from which they then formed civil society. Doug argues in his in his essay basically that social contract theory, and I'm going to quote here, exists off the residue of Christendom. So, mm-hmm. what do you what do you mean by that, Doug? And then I'll have Paul comment on it. Yeah, I I regard the whole Enlightenment project, um, in and I include the whole social contract mm-hmm. frame of mind in the, that Enlightenment project. I regard the Enlightenment project as the prodigal son who mm-hmm. runs away from home. And doesn't run out of money on the first day, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. He he's got money to sp- spend on the painted ladies and money to buy rounds for the drinks, round a round of drinks for all his friends for a while because his father left him a good inheritance. I believe that we received enormous amounts of moral capital from mm-hmm. Chris from Christendom, mm-hmm. and when we rebelled against our heritage, we still had a lot of the money. Mm-hmm. And we just assumed in our hubris that this money is just the way things are. We were the spoiled son of a billionaire who went off and who went off and assumed that all you do is charge it. All you do is uh, run up the tab and, and it gets taken care of. And I think we're pri- we are privileged to be living in an era when the checks are starting to bounce um, and people, oh, you know, Maybe Christian, maybe Christianity um, was good for something. <laughs> maybe it taught us to stand in line at the post office. Okay. Yeah, um, maybe the rule of law is not something that is just natural to the to the sinful heart. Maybe it's a function of uh, preaching the gospel and. Mm-hmm. sanctification over time uh, um, so basically that's what that's what i intend by it the the enlightenment project the whole thing is been living off of the moral capital that was accumulated in the centuries prior and like the saying goes they they were born on third and thought they hit a triple they 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 take the credit for all of these um concern for others they take the credit for it when it's actually an inheritance from christianity let me quote here from from nietzsche's the gay science um and this is coming from truman's book he says after buddha was dead his shadow was still shown for centuries in a cave a tremendous gruesome shadow 
God is dead, but given the way of men, there may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will still be no shown. And Truman's using Nietzsche to argue the, the case that, um, you know, even though the Enlightenment has kind of done away with God as, as an organizing factor within the political, you know, society, um, for thousands of years, potentially hundreds of years, as it turns out, we could still be living off the residues or within the shadow of God. Mm -hmm. But the point is that eventually that shadow is going to be uh, done away with. And that's kind of what we see happening now. Paul, do you have any comments on, on the residues of Christendom? Yeah, I, I think the residues are extremely strong. I think it's very hard to explain anything uh, in our culture that is not in some way derivative from Christianity. Um, including these crazy lunatics, these woke people, you know, who are uh, sort of Christian heretics. They take certain aspects of and throw away the rest of it. You know, we, we should be kind, generous, uh, uh, caring about the needy. And of course, the needy are defined as, you know, uh, uh, Antifa transgendered or something. But uh, they, they do appeal to Christian charity and Christian virtues all the time. Uh, the Enlightenment is inconceivable without Christianity. Uh, there, there is this absolutely awful book by Peter Gay on the pagan origins of the Enlightenment, in which he, as you know, a Jewish leftist, was making an argument that it's not really Christianity. It had no effect. It's paganism in the Enlightenment. Uh, I think the, the theory propounded by Carl Becker in the Heavenly City of the 18th century is much closer to the truth. Good book. Uh, that you see Christianity just running through the Enlightenment. You know, it's an attempt to create it on, you know, with a theory of progress, make it rationalistic and so forth. But it assumes, you know, 1500 years of Christian sensibility is there. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to, uh, the, 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 the political movement, which looks least like Christianity to me is Nazism, uh, because it tries to uh, create a kind of pagan myth that it tries to revive. Um, but even communism, you know, lands up dragging along part of the Christian heritage. Uh, even some aspects of Christian eschatology that it reconstructs. But the appeal to the downtrodden, the suffering, you see this in Jesus' teachings and the Old Testament. This is, this is certainly, this is sort of a common, uh, the common culture on which these radical movements build. Um, you know, as I point out, it'd be very hard to find wokeness in a Buddhist, Buddhist society or even a Muslim society, unless they import it from us. But you can see it in a Christian society, which has gone bad. You know, in, uh, this is something in uh, Rene Girard, in his book, right. I, see, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, has right, a, chap exactly. a, a chapter on the West's obsession with victims, mm -hmm. which, uh, which is the legacy of uh, uh, Christianity right. that had gone bad. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, he says, if you look at all the other civilizations and cultures with their utter indifference to, the, to victims, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in the West, this is a demented form of oh, well. It's a, like you said, it's a heresy. So mm -hmm. uh, we we are scrambling who can be the best victim, who can, <laughs> who who can be the who can be the the top victim, and that's where intersectionality comes in. Mm -hmm. I I'm I'm a victim three ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, last last couple of questions here, Doug. So, what are the uh, what are the prospects for social contract theory? Do you think it's kind of coming to the a close, or do you think it's just going to be used in new ways? I'm uh, I've been arguing that secularism that's dependent upon the Enlightenment and Darwin mm -hmm. and the whole spiel. I've I'm arguing that secularism is on its last legs. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't think they have. I I think they've got some fight in them left. But I don't think they've got the uh, intellectual capital to carry on much longer. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's going to have to be back. I'm arguing for mere Christendom, a return to Christendom self-consciously. Uh, but I think the alternative would be something like Islam, you know, it, um, uh, Islam, or a return to Christendom, or some kind of polytheism. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, cosmopolitan polytheism, but I think secularism is a joke and over and done. Stick a fork, stick a fork in it. <laughs> so you think, um, you know, basically that there's just a, a a coming recognition of the need for something transcendent. Yes. What do you think, Paul? I agree. Uh, I, I would argue that you know secularisms are different 
uh, secularism in a Muslim society looks different from secularism in a Catholic or a Protestant society. And what we see is sort of Western Christian secularism, which contains some of the elements, you know, of what it is parasitic on, uh, but also destroys it. And uh, I think it's, it's sort of playing itself out. Um, I think you do see a return to Christianity. Uh, you also see people converting to Islam. And, and this is very strange because, you know, the Islam is exactly the opposite of what all the left, the left want. They want uh, <laughs> uh, polysexuality, polygenderism, right? Uh, no, right. All of this stuff. And, and, and Muslims are nasty patriarchs and women are ground underfoot in many of these Muslims. And this is fine, you know, we'll convert yeah. to it. Um, but I, I think what it, what it shows is, you know, anything but Christianity, you know, I'll convert yeah. to something else, even though it's infinitely more oppressive uh, not yeah. to be a Christian. But, uh, you know, obviously the secularism is sort of playing itself out. And I think at some point, the anti-Christianity will play itself out. It's, you know, you can see exactly where it's leading uh, to utter self-destruction in the case, cultural and social self-destruction in the case of Western societies. Uh, and you may be right, Pastor Wilson, maybe they may be on its last leg. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, it sort of played out its string. Uh, and it's, if you notice the, the, uh, the woke left is becoming more and more insane. You know, yeah. that uh, parents are to give up the rights to change the gender of their kids and to mutilate them sexually. I'm, I'm, people go along. I can't believe anyone can go along with this. I mean, it's like pure insanity by now. Yeah. And I, I think there will be a reaction. It won't be just returning to an earlier form of the insanity. I think, I think in the end, there will be a rejection of the insanity. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think people right. understand it all goes together. Uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed in the Fox News is that Gay marriage is now considered this conservative. This is a family value, but but, but you know, transgender stuff is a little you know it's it's like one bridge too far or something. Yeah. Or once, so we, but I I think all these things go together, you know. And once you start projecting, you know, C, you're going to go back to B and go back to A and so forth. Uh, and I think it's all going to come down like a house of cards. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It and it's interesting, you know, the the cataclysmic confrontation that can ensue because, you know, you talked about at the beginning, like, in, you know, when America was trying to work itself out, you had Presbyterians and Baptists and Quakers kind of confronting each other, but they were mm -hmm. existing within a metaphysical, you know, uh, order, basically, right. that they all agreed on. But now you say, you know, the, 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 the confrontations <laughs> that can come about at the end of secularism are much more significant. Yes. <laughs> as, as a Presbyterian. I long, I yearn for the days back when the Quakers were the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, any comment on that, Paul? <laughs> no, I think I think this is interesting because you say the the inevitable. There's you know conflicts are inevitable, but the theological arguments you know that between Presbyterians and Quakers and Baptists and so forth seem much more reasonable to me. Yeah. Than you know the argument between the transgendered or. Uh, the, the non-binary with the binary. I mean, it's, it's yeah. sort of reached the part of utter, it's reached the point of utter absurdity. Well, it's the thing that- Anything to do with rationality or traditions of any kind. Because the thing that makes argument possible is shared premises. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, the Westminster Confession, the American Westminster Confession adopted in 1789 in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. uh, talked about the duty of the magistrate to mm -hmm. honor and respect all churches of our common Lord, mm -hmm. right? So at the time, they were thinking about the widest range being the variances between Christian denominations. They were not thinking of a pious Southern Baptist lady and someone who's going to fly an airplane into a skyscraper. That, <laughs> they, that, range, right. that range was not on the menu. Mm -hmm. I want to sneak, <laughs> sneak in one question based on that, um, and either of you can answer. Did people like Rousseau, did they, were their minds outside of Christendom or were they still operating within, you know, could, could they have imagined where this was all going? Well, I, I don't think, uh, Rousseau belonged to many Christian denominations. He would change his religion when he crossed the border. He was a, uh, it was reformed Christian. He was a Calvinist, born into, it was from uh, a citizen of Geneva. But then when he went to France, he became a Catholic. <laughs> to Geneva, he changed his religion again. Um, 
uh, he, he is a theist of some kind. It'd be very difficult to see him as any kind of Christian. Um, no. the, uh, uh, but I don't think he could possibly have conceived. Uh, he was very much of a sexist. He did not think that women should have any political rights, uh, uh, that they are, you know, to serve men in the home and so forth. Uh, and his models were, you know, like ancient Sparta, the Roman Republic. These are the examples of sound societies that he points to in the social contract. But there's no way that he could have, I, I don't think there's any way Karl Marx could have conceived of the insanity into which we've now descended. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> Good. Well, with, with that agreement, we'll, we'll draw this to a close. And You're, you're not you. going to ask the, uh, the question of should women vote? I would, well, you you brought up women. I I almost did. We let, let's let's ask that. Let's end on that then, Paul. What do you think about the Nineteenth Amendment? Well, you know my position. Uh, it's 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 you know it's 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 not only a, a question of the natural order of the family, but uh, it's a prudential judgment. And seeing what women's suffrage has done, um, I'm no longer a fan of the Nineteenth Amendment. Right, Doug. And yeah, so I can answer that on a practical level. For, first. Practically, if a husband and wife disagree, all they're doing is canceling each other out. Mm -hmm. And if they agree, all you're doing is multiplying the total tally by two. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So what we what we do in our church elections in our, in, in our church is we vote by household. Um, and so consequently, when a woman is the head of her household, as Lydia was in Acts 16, we have a, a, a single woman who has her own household. She votes because she represents her household. But we we vote for uh, ministers and elders and deacons uh, by household. So, um, and we don't regard that as any kind of uh, slam against women. We don't say women uh, don't get to vote and men do. We say neither men nor women vote. Households vote and the head of the household is the one who casts the vote. So, um, so that's what we do. And if that were in something like that were instituted in civil society, it wouldn't break my heart. <laughs> I, I, I accept that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so, somebody should call CNN because Doug is now a moderate on the uh, on the women. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm always a moderate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that, we should close. And uh, again, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk. Bye.